Hey, welcome. Uh, glad you're tuning in. Uh, I'm Dan, one of the pastors here at the Norton Campus Grace Church of Greater Akron. And love the fact you're checking things out today. If this is your first time, send us an email. Let us know. Love to meet you. If you don't have a church home, why don't you come hang out with us? 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11 o'clock Sunday mornings, 5.30 Sunday nights. Same service, same message. Uh, pick a time that you can come. We'd love to meet you. We'll save a seat for you. Uh, we're in this series on prayer. Started it last week, and so if you didn't get a chance to check that out, you can go back and check it out. But we're doing that because if you made a New Year's resolution, the majority of you that made a New Year's resolution had had something to do with prayer. Uh, Not only that, but we as a church family, in our next series, leading clear up to Easter, are going to do this 40-day prayer challenge. So we thought, hey, it'd be great to do conversation, sermon series on prayer. But the sermon series isn't about praying more or better or longer. Those things are great, fine, right? But we're simply saying, what if we pray different? Like, what if uh, you and I uh, dared to pray dangerous, even? Uh, we said this, suggested that most of us pray safe prayers. God, protect me. Put a hedge of protection around me. Give me the A on the test I didn't study for. God, uh, I'm praying for comfort. I'm praying for safety. Most of us pray safe prayers. And what we're saying is we want to encourage you off of the merry-go-round. Do you remember the illustration? If you didn't get a chance to check it out last week, I said my daughter used to love to ride the merry-go-round. <clears throat> and uh, one day, finally... Through a lot of coaxing, I encouraged her on to the roller coaster at King's Island, and she screamed, and her stomach fell, and her mind just about went crazy. She yelled at me the whole way, and then when we got done, she's like, that's awesome, let's do it again. Uh, What you don't know is I created a monster, because she got married a few years ago, went to Hawaii with her husband, and my merry-go-round riding daughter is in this picture. Uh, she's in an airplane, and uh, she's looking out the door to that airplane. At one point in time, they open that door, and that is my daughter flying in the sky. I've created a monster. She's like, Dad, why don't we go skydiving sometime? I'm like, you'll meet me at the merry-go-round. That's <laughs> what you'll do, right? Now, the fact of the matter is, is like we're saying, what if we pray dangerous? The challenge is to pray different even dangers, and we're calling ourselves off of the comfortability of the merry-go-round, the familiarity of the merry-go-round, onto the exhilarating ride of the roller coaster. Say, what if we pray dangerous prayers? And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we might even challenge ourselves out of the plane of complacency, and we might jump into the mind-blowing experience of faith. Uh, For some, this series is going to be about praying different prayers. Last week, for a lot of you, was that. You let me know that. Uh, We prayed, search me and know my heart, right? Show me why I do the things I do. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. Show me what I'm really afraid of. And then I want you, God, to uh, show me if there's any offensive way in me. Point out the things that are really wrong. I can't hide from you. I'm going to stop hiding. But then it ended with lead me. The God who pursues me, I'm going to follow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attach my life to his taillights. It's a life-giving decision. And for some of you, that's a prayer that you haven't normally prayed. You let me know that. Uh, and it's beginning to pray a prayer that wasn't familiar to you. It wasn't part of your arsenal. Uh, but for others of us, and there's other parts of this series where I think we're going to be praying prayers that we've prayed before. We just didn't recognize what we were praying. 
Uh, did you ever think about that? Sometimes we say things we don't really mean. They just kind of come out. They, they become kind of culturally acceptable. Uh, for instance, you're walking down the sidewalk. I do this all the time. Uh, and I'm walking. It could be in a public space. And uh, I don't simply say hi to people. I say, how you doing? So I walk past, hey, how you doing? Uh, you ever think about that? I really don't mean that. Because occasionally somebody will take me up on that and they'll stop and tell me. I'm like, well, who knew? What do they do? They're answering my question. It's what I ask. What I meant to say was hi. But what came out was how you doing? And when somebody dares respond to that, it's like, oh, wow, I did ask that, right? Or we say things like, that's the worst, right? We don't really know what we're saying. Don't mean it, right? We get a, uh, a Starbucks and it's not quite to our liking. We say, that's the worst. And it's like, really? Like, that's the worst? Like, sometimes we just say things and they, they pop out. We don't really mean them. It just kind of comes out. Now, I want to show you a prayer that most of you know. You've heard it. Maybe even you have it memorized. And so you've maybe even prayed it. Maybe even you've heard it sung. It's found in Matthew 6. This then is how you should pray. Jesus teaching that. Our Father, maybe you know it. Our Father in heaven. You can say it with me out loud. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. And many of you know this. We call it the what? I heard you. The Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's often recited at funerals, uh, weddings. Uh, I've heard this sung. It's beautiful when it's sung. It's a poem. It's on some wall hangings that some of you have. Heck, my football team, high school football team, we used to pray this before every game on Friday nights. No lie. Uh, most of the guys that I played football with were not followers of Christ, did not go to church, probably did not know any other part of the Bible. But every Friday night, we would recite this prayer. Hidden in this familiar, often recited, many times sung prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer is a risky, stay with me, unsafe, I would say different, even dangerous prayer that is just like jumping out of the belly of the plane of complacency, the belly of the plane of the same old, same old faith, and jumping into the air of surrender and commitment where my faith actually has a chance to fly and experience some things I've never experienced before. And I want to show you that because in the middle of this very familiar prayer is what is a prayer that I want to consider today. It's a prayer that people have prayed, do pray. Sometimes they pray it almost like an add-on to their prayer. And it's right in the middle of this, and here it is. Your will be done. Say that with me out loud. Your will be done. You see, this prayer was not put in the Bible so that you and I would have something to recite at funerals and weddings and even before football games. It was part of a greater dialogue the disciples were having with Jesus uh, Luke 11, you can check me on this. They actually asked Jesus, teach us to pray. And uh, when they asked him that, I personally don't think the reason they were asking him that was because they didn't know how to pray. I think they knew how to pray. Growing up, young Jewish boys, they knew how to pray. I think what they were asking Jesus, God, we, Jesus, we want to pray like you. You pray different. Uh, we want to pray different. And as we're going to find out, as he teaches them to pray, he teaches them to pray different and even, I would say, dangerous. Here's what we're going to find out today, wrapped in this, which is wrapped in a bigger prayer. Three things. I'll give you the roadmap, and then we'll flesh it out. We're going to find a reorienting declaration. We're going to find a countercultural commitment. And then we're going to be led right up to a Christ-like surrender. 
Uh, the phrase, your will be done, is part of a greater prayer. And when you connect it to its context, you begin to see that it's not some cute poetic prayer. But before you ever get to your will be done, you pass through some other territory. He says, this then is how you should pray. What does he say? Our Father in heaven. Uh, here's what he's saying, that when I say your will be done, at minimum, I've got to begin by knowing whose will am I asking to be done? Who am I talking to? And what he's saying here, at minimum, is I'm talking to my Father in heaven. It is a reorienting declaration that if I'm going to pray your will be done, I've got to reorient and declare who it is I'm talking to, whose will it is that I'm asking to be done. Apparently, I don't know if you knew this or not, but apparently you and I can pray wrong. Jesus just taught that, verses 5 through 8. You ought to go check that out. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8. Uh, first of all, he says, verse 5, he's like, y'all are praying, but you're praying to the wrong audience. You can pray to the wrong audience. He says, when you guys pray, you're praying so these people hear you. You ever pray like that? You ever pray like that? You ever hear somebody pray like that? Don't look at them. Uh, when they're praying, they're actually preaching a sermon. What they're trying to do is get a point across to the people listening, or they want people to be impressed with them. He says, we can pray to the wrong audience, and we can pray with the wrong attitude and action. And, and he says that a little later. When he says, y'all, uh, when you pray, you keep babbling like you're going to somehow just wear God down and pester him till you get what you want. See, we can pray wrong. And so what he wants to do is he wants to reorient our Father in heaven. It's a reorienting declaration so when I pray, your will be done, it begins with me reminding myself of whose will I'm asking to be done. Who am I talking to? I'm talking to God. I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to Mary. I'm not talking to a saint. I'm, I'm talking to God. But here's what's interesting. He says, when you pray, pray our Father. Uh, our Catholic friends call this prayer, not the Lord's Prayer, they call it the Our Father. I, I think that's fascinating because I think everything flows from that. This declaration that reorients me, I would write it down this way. I'm declaring the intimate love God has for me. When I say our Father, that the God of the universe has invited you and I into his family. Just let that sink in for a minute. The God of the universe has invited you and I into his family. But what's interesting is this prayer that we're looking at today reminds me that the one who is teaching his disciples, and therefore us on prayer, namely Jesus, became the way for you and I to become part of the family of God. He became the way for you and I even to address God as our Father. Did you know that? That Jesus came and lived a life that we have not lived. He lived a perfect life, but he ended up dying a death he did not deserve because he died the death you and I deserved for our sin, for the things we're guilty of, regret, are ashamed of. The moment you and I believe, accept the gift, say yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord, not only are we forgiven of our sin, but we have a seat at the table and we become part of the family of God. Did you know that? Here's the way the Bible says it. So in Christ, when you say yes to Jesus, you don't work your way there, grit your way there, go uh, be religious enough to get there. In Christ, when I'm in Christ, I say yes to Jesus and what he did for me at the cross. I say yes to him as Savior and Lord. In Christ, you are all what? Children of God through what? Faith. You don't work your way into it. It's through faith. Look at this. I love this passage. See how very much our Father loves us for he calls us what? His children. 
It's mind-bending to me. When you and I pray your will be done, we're not praying to an unpredictable dictator in the sky, a moody maker. We're not praying to an uncaring creator, but we are praying to our Father in heaven who loves us so much that the moment we say yes to Jesus, he calls us his children. Can I just say it this way? This declaration is reorienting our Father in heaven. It reminds me of this. That prayer is a function of relationship. It's not some simply religious ritual that we do. It reminds me of that. It reorients me that it is a function of the relationship that I have with the God of the universe, and I call him Daddy Father. It reminds me that I'm not trying to get God's attention, but I am responding to the God whose attention I have. He made that very apparent by his love shown to me. It reminds me that there's nothing that I can or will do to make him love me more or less. It reminds me that I can be at peace when my prayers are not answered. Let me say that again. It reminds me, it's a declaration that reminds me that I can be at peace when my prayers are not answered. You know why? Because he's my father And he'll give me what I need and ask for, or he'll give me what I would have asked for if I knew everything he knew. You see, here's the deal. When unanswered prayer leaves me angry and anxious, it might be because I need to reorient who I'm praying to. It might be because I'm coming to prayer and I see God as this cosmic vending machine. I see God as this supernatural sugar daddy who gives me simply what I ask for. But see, when I say our Father, it reminds me that it's a function of relationship. I'm at peace when prayer goes unanswered because I'm, I'm praying to my Father who knows what I need. And it reminds me I can keep coming back. He loves to hear from his kids, our Father. Not only that, the next thing he says is hallowed. I can't, every time I read this, and some of you have heard me say this, I think of a little girl who said, I didn't know God had a name. She told her parents, God had a name. What's, what's God's name? It's Howard. She said, it says, our father, Howard, be your name. I love that, right? It says hallowed. Say that out loud, hallowed. It's probably the first time you've used that word this week, right? Raise your hand if you've used that word this week, before today. Probably not. We don't use that word. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean, hallowed? be your name. Well, it's an old English word, and here's the roots of it. It just means holy, revered, respected. I have written here in my notes to be treated as the ultimate and absolute thing, among other things. He's saying, hallowed be your name, and the reason he says be your name is because a person's name reflected all that you are. Uh, They had meaning attached to their name. So he's saying, God, my Father, Uh, Your name, which reflects all that you are, is revered, honored, set apart. It is the ultimate and absolute thing among all other things. You are. Uh, It makes me me think this. makes me think this, that I don't know uh, if you follow the news, but my news feed uh, this morning said this, that uh, this week we are saying goodbye to two goats. You know what I mean? Goats. Not like, bah, goats. But like goats, you know what goat stands for? Greatest of all time. Do you recognize these pictures? Bill Belichick, Nick Saban. Bill Belichick uh, is uh, leaving the New England Patriots. Some of you that are Browns fans, uh, Steelers fans, whatever you might be, are glad because you've lost many a game and watched him win many a Super Bowl. Six Super Bowls, like 
greatest of all time. Many are saying he's the greatest NFL coach of all time. I think he's 15 games wins away from the all-time winning record. I'm not sure. Something like that. Nick Saban, college, Alabama. The Alabama coach, seven national championships, if I remember right. So people are saying they are the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And maybe in the coaching world, maybe they're right. I don't know. That's up for debate. For them, they'll both be in the Hall of Fame, College Hall of Fame, Pro Hall of Fame. Their name will be in a ring of honor. Their name will be associated with greatness. Uh, when you say their name, people are going to think greatest coach of all time, more than likely. You see, here's, I think, what he's saying. He's saying that when I come and I say, hallowed be your name, it's a reorienting declaration. I'm declaring the ultimate treasure God is to me. That to hallow his name is to treasure all that's true about him, all that his name reflects and realign my life with that. That my father, stay with me, my father is the true goat. I'm not saying that in some sort of um, superficial way. He is the true greatest of all time. That God is the greatest of all time. That he is the God of all things. He is the God over all things. That he is the true goat. He, he now sits in the hall of fame of one. His name is in the ring of honor. Did you know that his name has so much treasure, so much meaning to it? In the Hebrew, we see all kinds of names for God. Adonai, Elohim, El Roy, El Shaddai. These names mean this, that he, his name says this, that he is the sovereign God. He's the most high God. He's the mighty God, the everlasting God, the God who sees is sufficient, meets the needs of his people. He is the Lord God, the eternal God, the maker, the provider. He is a sanctifier, a banner, a shepherd. He's the healer. He is our peace. He is present and he is righteous. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus God in the flesh tells us the names of God. He is the light of the world and the living water. He is the good shepherd. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the vine and the victor over death, sin, and Satan. He is the savior of the world, the Lord, the king. He has the name that is above every name. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the goat. He is the greatest of all time. He is the God over all things. His name is in a ring of honor by itself. That's what I'm saying. I'm declaring the ultimate. It's the ultimate. There's not, it's not competing above, beyond any other name. I, I, I think about this, and I use this one other time, hallowing his name. How do we do that? Well, can I give you an illustration? If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, just kind of stay with me on it. But I think to hallow the name of God is much like swinging on a swing set. You ever swing on a swing set? I have grandkids, so I push them on that. And uh, when, my, when I want to be safe, I just kind of swing like this, right? Just kind of a little bit. And I need somebody to push me. But when I get a little older and, and I love the exhilarating feeling of a little more danger on that thing, what I do is I kick out and then I kick back. And I kick out and I kick back. I kick out, and the higher I go, right? I think that's a little bit of what it means to hallow the name of God. Hallowing his name means swinging higher and more vigorously into the truth and understanding of the treasure of the God I'm praying to. When I say, thy will be done, I'm reminded of who I'm talking to. Let me say it this way. All of us love 
that God is a forgiving God, right? And so we kick into that. But I'm going to tell you something. You're going to go higher in understanding your forgiveness if you kick back and understand he is a holy God. And the more I understand his holiness, the higher I understand his forgiveness. And the more I understand his forgiveness, the more I appreciate his holiness. And it's just like this. A lot of us are like, I really am glad God is a close and personal God that he cares about me. Like, I'm going to swing into that. It's like, I love when the preacher preaches on that. And that's awesome, and that is true, that God is near, right? He's, he's eminent. He's right here with me. He cares about my needs. But, but that's going to become more powerful to you as you swing into his bigness and his transcendence. That the God who's over all things is concerned with your things. And the more you swing into this, the higher this becomes. And the more you appreciate this. And you, the more you hallow the fact that that God would care about you. And the more you understand this, it's just back and forth. That the one who is the savior of the world is the judge of the world. It's like, wow, back and forth. He says, hallowed be your name. Like, it's a, it's a reorienting declaration. Like, you love me. Invite me to be a part of your family. There is no one like you. There's one more thing that I, I gotta quickly say. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But I don't wanna skip the pronoun. He says what? Not my Father. He is my Father. But he says what? Our Father. Our Father. This is a reorienting declaration. This is reorienting my life around the deep love that God has for me, reorienting my life around the ultimate treasure God is to me. But I want you to write it this way. It's a reorienting declaration that I'm declaring my identification as part of his family. Never once in the Lord's Prayer do you see him say, I, me, or mine. When I pray, thy will be done, I'm declaring his intimate love for us, his that he is our ultimate treasure, and I'm declaring I belong to his family. Can I just say this, and then I gotta move on. I cannot recognize God as my father without recognizing that I'm part of a very big family. That prayer is personal, yes, but it's communal and familial. I'm part of a family. Do you know you're part of a family? I'm a dad. Raise your hand if you're a dad. Are you a dad? I'm a dad. I have kids. I have more than one kid. Sometimes we can live as though we're an only child in God's family. Like, I'm the only one that he has to be concerned about. I'm the only one that he cares about. Or if I'm not an only child, certainly I'm his favorite child. My, we kid about that. I, my mother-in-law lives with me and my wife. And I kid her all the time. And if you're watching this, Mary Jane, you know I kid you this way. I'll ask her all the time, who's your favorite son-in-law? And she'll say, you are. And what you need to know is I'm her only son-in-law, <laughs> Right? But sometimes we, we, we relate to God like we're his only child or we're his favorite child. The fact of the matter is our Father in heaven has a really, really big family. A really big family. And if you said yes to Jesus, you are part of a really big family with lots of brothers and sisters coming to the same Father. It's a reorienting declaration. Thy will, the Father who has a big family, I get to call you Father, along with all these other people, and you are a treasure that is unlike anything else. I'm going to reorient my declaration. Now, so when I say your, that's your will be done, that's who I'm saying it to. My father, who is the ultimate treasure, who has a really big family. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. If you write in your Bibles, you ought to, by the way, 
I would draw an arrow for your will and your kingdom. What does that mean? All he's saying is this, your will be done is directly connected to your kingdom come. What is his will? Your kingdom come. Jesus, when he was here, do you notice, was obsessed with the kingdom of God, with the kingdom of heaven. Over 80 times in the Gospels, you see Jesus referring to the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. In fact, I don't think you can understand the message of Jesus apart from understanding this. That when Jesus came, he said the kingdom has arrived. That in Matthew 4.23, he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. That he said in Matthew 6.33, seek first his what? Kingdom. When he told parables, they were usually pictures of the kingdom. And we did a series on this. You can go back and check it out a couple years ago. But the kingdom is not a place, but it's more of an action and activity that our father is a king who establishes his kingdom in the life of everyone who accepts Jesus as savior and follows him as Lord and king. And so here's the deal. The one, he's the king. He's the one who has complete authority and rule and reign in my life. He calls the shots. And when that happens here on earth, his kingdom comes in my life. And so the kingdom of God rules in the life of those where he is Savior, Lord, and King. And so here's what we're doing. When we pray, your will be done, we're making a commitment to follow the will of Jesus as King of our life in a world where most are not. What we're doing is we're praying your will be done because your kingdom and your will together. We're praying we're going to follow, we're going to make this commitment to follow the will of the king in a world where most are not. I would write it down this way. It's a countercultural commitment. This prayer is a countercultural commitment. Do you know this prayer is delivered right in the middle of a sermon that was delivered by the king? And, and you can read it on your own, Matthew 5 through 7. It doesn't take long to see that he preaches this sermon, and it's all about this counterculture. It's the kingdom culture. In his sermon, the king expresses his will. Uh, he says things like this. In our culture, here's what's expected. Love your friends and hate your enemies. In the kingdom culture, the kingdom of the king, it's countercultural. He says, I want you to love your friends and love your enemies. Think about how counter, just let that sink in. Think about how countercultural that is. It's easy to love our friends, those who are of the same tribe, ilk as us, but to love those who are from a different tribe. I mean, come on, you already know all kinds of ways that plays out, right? Uh, Ohio State and Michigan, right? I've been talking to Ohio State fans all week, like, oh, I hate the fact that Michigan won the national champion. Like, why? So I hate Michigan. Yeah. Okay, I'm being funny there. The truth is, when you're not for us, you're against us. This shows up all the time in politics. Watch the political ads that will be coming in November. The way to get you to vote for me is to cause you to hate them. Right? You see, in the kingdom, he's saying this. It's countercultural. He says, it's not love your friends and hate your enemies. He says this, love your friends and love your enemies. He says this, that it's expected in our culture, right, that you're going to, that greatness is measured by how many people are serving you. But in the kingdom culture, in the culture of the king, greatness is measured by how many people you're serving. 
He's saying this, that it's expected in our culture that external actions are the thing that matter most. But in the kingdom culture, in, in Jesus' kingdom culture, he's saying this, that it's the internal motives and intentions of the heart that matter. It's not just don't murder somebody, but if you're angry with somebody. It's not just, I didn't sleep with a woman, but if you look at a woman with lust. He says in our culture, it's expected that you'll be quick to judge others and defend yourself. But in the kingdom culture, what he says is this, you'll be quick to examine yourself before accusing others. You see how this works? You see, we can go on and on. In our culture, it's expected when somebody gets you, revenge. But in kingdom culture, forgiveness. I think what he's saying is this, if you're taking notes, that a countercultural commitment is a commitment to follow the king's way. When we follow the king's way, we can expect culture shock. You ever you experienced culture shock? You ever been to a different culture? I've been to uh, Argentina, Haiti, Mexico, Puerto Rico, places like that, and there's culture shock. Uh, there's things they do in their culture that are like, we don't do it that way. And... I'm not used to doing it that way. You ever been to a culture where they drive on the wrong side of the road? Or what we would say is the wrong side of the road? That's culture shock. It's almost like in this sermon that this prayer is found in, Jesus is telling us to drive on the opposite side of the road. That's what it feels like. Because in essence, you ought to write this down somewhere, no slide for it, that when we say your will be done, we're saying your will is to follow your way. We're going to follow your heart. We're going to drive on that side of the road. No one else is. We're going to drive on that side of the road. When everyone else is getting on the bandwagon, we're going to drive on that side of the road. That's what he's saying. Your will be done. It's a dangerous prayer. Uh, but it's not just that. There's something else I want to show you. Second Peter 3 says, Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, days like a thousand years, thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. Here's his will, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I'd write this down, that a countercultural commitment is a commitment to proclaim the king's message. His expressed will is he doesn't want any to perish. The sentiment, your will be done, is directly tied to proclaiming the message of the gospel of the kingdom because his will is that none should perish. You need to know in ancient times when a king had a message, he sent an announcement. That announcement, let's say he was making a proclamation, was called a gospel. He sent it through heralds or evangelists to proclaim whatever the message was. So the gospel announcement from the king came through the mouth of the heralds and the evangelists. Here's all Jesus is saying. It's like, it's not complicated. It's not like super duper, like mystical, mysterious. He's saying, our father is a king who has this incredible message that he wants everybody to hear. It's an announcement. And his children are the herald, the, the evangelist, the one to spread that. that. That we have a message from our father who is the king that God loves you. That Jesus died for you in your place. And that the offer of forgiveness is a free gift that comes by trusting Christ as your savior. The moment you do that, you're going to have a place in his family and a forever hope. Guys, here's the deal. For those of you who are followers of Christ, when I pray, thy will be done, sometimes we, we, we make the will of God so mysterious, he makes his will clear that when I pray, thy will be done, it causes me to look around and ask, am I doing his will? 
Do I share the heart and ask, I wonder who doesn't know the king's message? I wonder who doesn't know and understand my father's announcement. And when I pray your will be done, it reminds me to look around at those who may not understand the message of the gospel and wonder what would it be for me to proclaim, to show, to share the king's incredible announcement. That's his will. But I need to tell you something, that Jesus taught his disciples this prayer. Did you know that? He says, when you pray, pray this way, thy will be done. It's connected to this reorienting declaration, your will, Father, be done. Your name is hallowed, and I'm part of a big family. It's connected to a countercultural commitment. Your will means I'm going to follow your way. Your will means I'm going to proclaim your message, because that's your will. But Jesus didn't just teach his disciples to pray this. Did you know this? But there's another place in the Bible where Jesus actually prayed this. And some of his disciples were present. It was the night before they crucified Jesus. It's found in the book of Luke, chapter 22. He went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you won't fall into temptation. Then he went about a stone's throw beyond them, and he knelt down and prayed. And he said, Father, reorienting declaration, I trust you. It, this is a conversation born out of relationship. There's a tenderness and intimateness, Father, Daddy. And then there's this honesty. Because Jesus, at this point in the story, knows what's ahead of him. The anguish and the agony that is hours away. So he can come into that intimate moment with his Father. And he can be honest, if you're willing, take this cup from me. I love the honesty of the prayer. If you're willing, take this, yet not my will, but what? but yours be done. I want you to write this down, that sure, it's a reorienting declaration, it's a countercultural commitment, but it's a Christ-like surrender. Jesus is praying this prayer in the garden, and it was agonizing. The struggle was so intense that as you read, he sweat drops of blood. As he stared the illegal trials, the unthinkable torture, and the impending crucifixion that he was about to face, as he stared it down, and he says, Father, he reorients, Father, I trust you. I know you love me. I don't doubt you love me. And, and that relationship opened itself to honesty. He was not afraid to say, is there another way? If you're willing, if there was a different way, take this cup. He wasn't afraid to keep coming back to the Father. Did you know that? That he prayed this prayer three times. He came back three times and prayed this prayer. And yet at the end, what did he say? He said, not my will, but thine be done. Christ-like surrender is simply, I'm surrendering my to thy. When I think about this Christ-like surrender, I think about the fact that we have a God who, not, who suffered for us. He suffered for us. 
And in that suffering for us, he suffered for us so that God could accomplish for us what we couldn't do on our own. I love Tim Keller wrote it this way. Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. Jesus was shut out so we could get access. He was bound and nailed so we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that we can, that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He took that now so that all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond. The suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. You see, for some of us, we find ourselves in, the, in a garden of sorts. Christ suffered for us, but I love the fact we have a God who suffered with us. I, I, I love the fact that we have a God who suffered like us, and the reason that's important is because some of you are in a garden of your own. For some of you, it's the garden of relocation. God is calling you somewhere else to relocate, to, to move, and you're like, God, I don't really want to go. Father, I, 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 I don't want to uproot my family, but I'm going to surrender my to thy. Uh, for some of you, you're in a garden of forgiveness because you're like, I don't want to forgive that person again. I'm afraid if I forgive them again, it'll validate something. It'll justify something in them. I'm afraid if I forgive in them. God, Father, I, I, I'm so tired of doing this. I'm in this garden of forgiveness, and I feel like, but not my will, but thine be done. For some of you, you're in a garden of a relationship, possibly, that you, you, you it's just hard to stay in. And, and you've been staying, and you're committed, and yet it's, it's exhausting to you. And God, I don't want to stay, and I don't want to keep doing this, and I don't want to keep, keep going through this over and over again, yet in this, this garden that you find yourself in, you pray, not my will, but thine be done it's a situation might be a garden of a situation the truth is there are some of you you ready there's some of you you ready you're in a garden of suffering because the doctor told you the test came back this way and now you find yourself in a garden of unanswered questions a garden of wanting to know why, what for, and how's it going to turn out, and those answers are not accessible. And you find yourself in a garden of suffering. And you find yourself much like the God who suffered for you. And now you see he suffers with you. And you're praying like him, and God says, Come, I'm a, I'm a father, reorient. I love you. You can be honest with me. But the prayer is, God, I would do it a different way. I don't want the test results to be this. I don't want the path to be this. I'd love to know the answers to this, but you ready? Not my will, what, but yours. Not my, but thy. You see, I wrote this down in my notes. I wasn't going to add it, but I'm surrendering in my garden now because of what I believe he's doing then. You see, when Jesus prayed this prayer, it led him right to a cross. Do you know that? A cross that was awful. 
agonizing. But it was only through the pathway of that cross that he found his way to that tomb. And it was only through the pathway of that cross that led to that tomb that we have the story of the resurrection. And it's the power of the story of the resurrection that accomplishes in you and I what we could never accomplish on our own. And because of that, he had victory over sin, death, and Satan. And we can have a forgiveness of our sins. We can be part of the family we've got to have a forever hope. You see, that very same Jesus is the one that we follow. And he says, take up your cross. I don't know what garden you're in right now, but I'm surrendering in my garden now. It's not one I would choose. It's not one I understand. I'm going to surrender now because of what I believe he's doing then. That he's a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who's accomplishing his purposes. And he's doing that in you right now. Not my will, but yours be done. Because I trust God. And I believe in what you're doing then. And I believe in what you're doing is way better, way more beautiful than what I could dream of doing if I simply took control. So I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be tender with you. Father, is there a different way? Father, can we change the circumstance? But not my will, but yours be done. I'm surrendering in my garden, whatever that garden is now, because I believe what you're doing then. Would you pray with me? I don't know, some of you have never ever entered into the family of God, received the forgiveness of sin found in Christ. Come on, right there, where you're at. What, what's keeping you from that? Why don't you just pray? God, I do believe you love me. I believe I'm a sinner. And I believe Jesus died in my place for my sin. And today, this day, I want to receive the gift of salvation found in Christ. I'm trusting Jesus as the Savior who died for me, the Lord who is alive and living, and I want to make him king of my life. There's a lot of you that's already prayed that prayer. You're a follower of Christ. Can I ask you, what does it mean for you to pray, thy will be done? Thy will be done. Maybe for some of you, you need to reorient yourself in prayer to get into the Father's presence, to recognize the ultimate treasure and the big family you belong to. Maybe it's you recognizing the king has a way that he's inviting you to follow or a message that he's dying for you. He died for you to share. But there's some of you right now, you're in a garden, just like your Savior, just like your Lord, just like your king, and he did not teach us something he wasn't willing to practice. And in that garden, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And I wonder what it would mean for you to surrender your my to his thy, to surrender in your garden of now because of what you believe he's accomplishing then. He's a good king. And so God, I pray, you are our father. You're our ultimate treasure. We are a family of brothers and sisters. And we're praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.